Thank you, Melissa, for using your talents to serve our church in that way and for pointing us to Christ. Really appreciate that. We're so thankful for people like Melissa who use their gifts for the building up of our church and grateful for her. Can you all hear me okay? Okay. Would you please turn in your Bibles to our passage this morning, Matthew 20, verse 29 through 21, verse 17. This morning is Palm Sunday, a day when we as a church and the church throughout the world celebrates a bold, provocative, and polarizing claim that Jesus is King. Jesus is King. This is a central truth of our faith. It is the central message of the triumphal entry, which we remember on Palm Sunday. But in Jesus' day and in our day, it is an inherently confrontational claim. A claim to kingship is a claim to authority. A claim to kingship makes demands of those who hear it. Either you will follow a king or you will reject a claimed king. Either you will embrace them as your Lord or you will turn against them. And this morning in our passage, Matthew 20 Verse 29 through 21, verse 17, we, each of us who are here this morning, whether we are following Jesus already or whether we are still considering who he is, we all must come to grips and grapple with this claim that Jesus is king. So my hope as we open up God's word is that we will see this to be true and that we will consider what kind of king Jesus is and what it looks like for us to respond to him. Would you please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word? I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, starting in Matthew 20, verse 29. It says this, And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, that is Jesus. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. And when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and you will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold! Your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? 
And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Jesus is king. That is the main idea of this passage, the main truth that we need to get settled in our minds this morning. Jesus is king. That is what Matthew is arguing for here in this passage. That is what Jesus is claiming for himself through his actions in this passage. That is what the crowds and the blind men and the children are claiming in this passage. Jesus is king, and not just any king, he is the king. The king in David's line, promised in the Old Testament, the king of all the earth. That is the one thing, if you take one thing away this morning, that's what I want you to take away. Jesus is king. But this claim that Jesus is king is a claim that we can't just believe in the abstract or consider in the abstract, it is a claim that makes demands of us. It is a claim that we must respond to in certain ways. And so in this passage, we are going to see that this claim that Jesus is king is shown to us in a context where some in our story embrace Jesus as king while others reject him. Some embrace him, some reject him. And so this morning, I want us to see who Jesus is as king and then consider how we will respond. Will we embrace him as king or will we reject him as king? That is the choice that those who saw Jesus in that first day had to make. That is the decision that we all must make today. So we're going to walk through the passage and we're going to see this claim that Jesus is king and then see the varied responses. The first thing I want us to see is that we should embrace Jesus as king and look to him for salvation because he is a merciful and saving king. We should embrace him as king and look to him for salvation because he is a merciful and saving king. We see this first in verses 29 through 34 in an incident with two blind men. Matthew sets the stage for us in verse 29 by telling us that Jesus was going out of Jericho, and he's going to Jerusalem, the capital city of God's people, the place where the temple was, the place where the throne of Israel had been seated in previous generations. Jesus is walking a path to Jerusalem, a path that we've seen in the previous weeks he knew would lead to his own death, to his crucifixion, and then his resurrection. And so Jesus is going to Jerusalem, the place where kings were enthroned, and he's walking that path, and he's being followed by this massive crowd. 
a crowd that's been hearing about Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, and a crowd that, as we'll see later in the passage, believes that Jesus is a king, that he is the son of David. And so they're traveling on their way to Jerusalem, where kings would be enthroned, and they're going, it's sort of, think of like a presidential motorcade, right, on the way to the inauguration. They're traveling, there's this massive procession, they're following Jesus, and as they're going, verse 30, behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They call out to Jesus for mercy and call out to him as a king. We see this through the name that they give him. They call him Lord, which will also be translated king, and they call him Lord, son of David. Now, if you're new to the church or new to Christianity, you might not know what that means. What does it mean for someone to be a son of David? Well, in the Old Testament, David had been the greatest king of God's people. He had ruled and reigned from Jerusalem. He had followed God. And God had made a promise to David that one of David's descendants would rule forever. That David's descendants would rule not only God's people Israel, but that they would rule all the nations of the earth. And so God had made this promise that from David's royal line, a great king would come. Yet there was a problem. David's descendants and the people of Israel, the people of God, had rebelled against God. They had turned their backs on him. They had turned to unrighteousness. And so God had allowed them to be defeated by their enemies, to be taken into exile by groups like the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And then they were ruled by these foreign powers like the Greeks and in Jesus' day, the Romans. Because of their sin, their kings had been removed from the throne. They were suffering under their enemies, and they were longing for hope, longing for someone who would come and who would rule them with righteousness, unlike the Romans, who would rule them with justice. And God, in his mercy, had seen his people's rebellion. He had made them a promise. He'd said, one day a king will come in David's line. One day a king will come and rule in righteousness and justice, and he will restore my people, and he'll rule over all the earth. And so God's people had been waiting and longing for century after century after century, waiting for the Son of David to come. And Matthew makes clear in his gospel that Jesus was this promised king, that Jesus was this promised Son of David. He tells us it in the first verse of Matthew 1, in Matthew 1.1. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus' identity has been a point of controversy. Some Like the religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees believe Jesus is a false teacher. They believe he's possessed by Satan, while others recognize Jesus for who he truly is. And as these two blind men, the unseeing, call out to Jesus as Lord, Son of David, they show that they see Jesus clearly. Though they cannot see physically, they see him for who he is, as this promised king who has come to deliver God's people. And it is that hope in Jesus as the son of David, the one who will bring mercy and healing that they bank everything on. They say, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, they're met with a 
not very nice response from the crowd. So Jesus is heading up to Jerusalem. We've got this procession going to the place where the sons of David had ruled in the past. And the crowd doesn't want anyone getting in their way. They want to get to Jerusalem. They want the king to be set up. And so when the blind men call out to Jesus, the crowd, we're told, verse 31, rebuked them, telling them to be silent. The crowd's ready for Jesus to be the sort of king that comes and knocks out the Romans and sets up the kingdom. And they have no time for the weak, for the blind, for those who are in need of help. But Jesus shows himself to be a different kind of king than many were expecting. Not the sort of king who doesn't have time for the weak, but the sort of king who has mercy, whose heart goes out to the two blind men on the side of the road. We read that though the crowd rebuked him, they called out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? He stops this massive procession, his procession to Jerusalem, to take care of two blind men on the side of the road. Imagine the presidential motorcade stopping to take care of two homeless people on Pennsylvania Avenue. It's unheard of, right? Kings don't stop for blind people on the side of the road, certainly not when they're on their way to Jerusalem. But Jesus is the sort of king who stops. Jesus is the sort of king whose heart goes out to him, to them. And so Jesus heals them, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. They see in Jesus the king, the promised king, but they know that Jesus is the merciful king, the one in whom they can find salvation and deliverance. And so they call out to him, and he hears, and then they join the procession following the king. Friends, Jesus is the king, but he is not a king so high up that he cannot take pity on the lowly. He is not a king who has no time for the weak. He is a king who loves us. And so if you have not turned to him in faith, know that even if you are the lowest of the low, even if you might not seem like the sort of person a king would embrace, if you call to him in faith, he is the sort of king who will take mercy on you. So we ought to embrace Jesus as king and look to him for salvation. The second thing we see is that we can look to him not only to save us personally as the, as the blind men did, but to save God's people. That is what the crowds are doing. They know that Jesus is king. They embrace him as king and they look to him for salvation. We see this in the triumphal entry. In verses 1 through 4, Jesus tells his disciples to prepare a donkey and a colt for him. They're to go ahead into a village, find this donkey, untie them, and bring them to him, verse 2. And they're to do so because, verse 3, the Lord needs them. Jesus is the king, and as the king, he needs a royal steed, a royal beast to ride into Jerusalem. And so they go and they find this donkey, and Jesus sits on it, and he rides in to Jerusalem, the city of kings, and he rides in on a royal donkey. There's a lot of symbolism here. Jesus, through these actions, is claiming kingship, nothing less than that. A donkey was a symbol of royalty, specifically a symbol of royalty in David's line. You see, David's first son Solomon in 1 Kings 1, when he had been anointed king, 
can read about it in 1 Kings 1. He rode a donkey into Jerusalem. And he did so being acclaimed by crowds that were following him, that were worshiping God and singing praises. Jesus here is reenacting that, if you will. He also is riding a royal donkey. He's riding up into Jerusalem as the king. Just as David's first son Solomon rode up, so now Jesus, the son of David, is also riding up. And this riding on the donkey is a claim to kingship that the crowds get. They're not confused about what Jesus is claiming here. And we know this because of how they respond. They cry out, Hosanna to the son of David, verse 9. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. There they are quoting from Psalm 118, a psalm that spoke of one who would come and deliver God's people. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is that quotation. And it follows in Psalm 118 immediately after a plea for God to save his people and save them from their enemies. They see in Jesus the promised king And they're calling out to him as the promised king. They know exactly what he's claiming as he rides this donkey into Jerusalem. And they embrace him as that king. And just as the blind men looked to Jesus, the son of David, for deliverance, so the crowds looked to Jesus, the son of David, for deliverance, for salvation. Jesus is the saving king who delivers God's people. And the crowds following him from Galilee into Jerusalem understand this. They are looking to Jesus as their saving king, the one who will bring blessing to God's people, the one who will rule and reign in righteousness and justice, who will not oppress the weak, who will not not be okay with evil, the one who will reign and rule rightly. And so in the blind men and in the crowds, we see a part of what it looks like to respond to Jesus. We should embrace him as king and look to him for our salvation. But there is more than just looking to Jesus for salvation at play here. We are also to honor him as king. Jesus' riding in on a donkey was a claim to kingship, a claim that reenacted Solomon's actions, a claim that also fulfilled the prophet Zechariah, who's quoted in verse 5. Zechariah 9.9 said, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burning, saying, That's your king. Look, here he comes. And the proper response to a king is what? Worship, honor, loyalty. And that's what the crowds do. We see verse Seven that the disciples put cloaks on the donkey, and then most of the crowd, verse 8, spread their cloaks on the road. And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. They're rolling out a red carpet for Jesus. They're rolling out a royal entrance for this king with their own cloaks, with the trees around. They're giving up to honor the king. They're placing him in the highest place. They are honoring Jesus rightly as king. We cannot just look to Jesus for salvation without also honoring him as Lord, and the crowds here are honoring him as a king. They are treating him as one who is worthy of honor and glory 
That is what it looks like to embrace Jesus as king. We must show him the honor and the worship and the glory that he deserves. And they sing praise. They say, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They are singing praises to this king. They are honoring him as their king. And they are doing so rejoicing. They are excited. They are ecstatic that Jesus is the king. This is good news. Jesus is the righteous one. He is the glorious one. He is the one God has promised. And in him we have great cause to rejoice. He gave up himself to save us from our sins. He rose from the dead. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father and he will return again. And though they couldn't see all of that then, we know it now. And so in Jesus, we have great cause to rejoice because he is a king unlike any other earthly kings, one who is righteous and glorious, but also just and kind and merciful, and not just merciful in the abstract, merciful to us, his people. And so when we consider Jesus as king, let us look to him for salvation, let us honor him as king, and let us do so rejoicing, crying out, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. This is what it looks like to embrace Jesus rightly. And yet there is also a great danger. A danger that when we are confronted with Jesus as king, we may, instead of embracing him, reject him. And we see this contrast in the latter parts of our passage. The crowds come honoring Jesus as king, lifting his name up, rejoicing, celebrating, But when they enter Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem don't respond in the same way. We're told, verse 10, that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. They were in turmoil, saying, who is this? Who is this so-called king? Who is this person claiming the throne? See, what Jesus is doing here is, in many ways, a highly provocative act. Jerusalem at this point is ruled by the Romans. And there have been many who had come before Jesus claiming to be the king and causing turmoil and causing the Romans to crack down. The people of Jerusalem are suspicious of those claiming the crown. They're suspicious of what it could do to them. And we've seen throughout much of Matthew that the Pharisees don't want a king like Jesus. They don't want a king who will rule in righteousness and justice because it will threaten them. And so when Jesus comes in, when he rides into Jerusalem, not everyone is happy, not everyone's shouting and praising, not everyone's rolling out the red carpet. Many are questioning who this Jesus is. And the crowds that have been following Jesus, that know who he is, say this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. That language from Nazareth of Galilee is key here. Galilee was not prestigious. Galilee is a backwoods area. The people of Jerusalem looked down on Galilee. Can any good come from Galilee, was a common saying. And so as Jesus is coming in to Jerusalem from Galilee, the people of Jerusalem are suspicious. They don't welcome Jesus with open arms. And the religious leaders are even more hostile. We see their hostility most clearly in what immediately follows when Jesus cleanses the temple. 
Verse 12, we're told that Jesus entered the temple, the place where God's people were to worship him, and he shook things up, to say the least. He drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He comes in, he starts turning over tables, he starts chasing out those who are buying and selling, Why is Jesus doing this? Why is he coming in and overturning things? It's disruptive. It's confrontational. Why is Jesus doing this? Because Jesus is a merciful king, but he is also a just and righteous king. He says, verse 13, he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. Saying this is what the temple should be. Here he is quoting from Isaiah 56. In that prophecy from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah had spoken of a day when God would bless those who came to the temple, and not just the traditional people who had access to the temple, but people like foreigners and eunuchs, those who had traditionally been excluded. And there it had spoken that God had said that whoever would follow him would be welcome, and that they would worship him, and his house would be called a house of prayer for all nations for those who were ethnically Jewish, for those outside. And so Jesus comes in and he starts overturning tables because though that's the way it was supposed to be, that's not how things were going. You see, the money changers here are likely in the outermost court of the temple, what was called the court of the Gentiles. It was a place that was specifically set aside for foreigners to come and worship God. But over time, the necessary work of doing monetary exchanges and preparing for sacrifices had displaced the foreigners. They had taken up space to serve the main clientele, those who were able to go into the deeper parts of the temple, and they displaced the foreigners. They had removed the place for those on the margins, for those on the outside, and had set up shop. And Jesus makes clear that this was not acceptable in his kingdom, that this was exploitative, that this was not the way God wanted it to be. And we see it because he quotes a second prophecy. It says, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Here he is quoting from Jeremiah 7, verse 11. In Jeremiah's day, God's people had turned against God. And they had shown that they did not really care about following God by the way they treated one another. Listen to what Jeremiah says. He told them that they would go into exile, that they would be cut off because they had exploited the sojourner, they had exploited the widow, they had turned their backs on those they should have embraced. And they did so all with this veneer of piety, claiming to be faithful followers of God. This is what he says. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They were banking, they're saying, We're good, we've got the temple, we can live however we want, God will never cut us off. But Jeremiah says this, For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, 
the fatherless or the widow or shed innocent blood in this place. And if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Jesus here is quoting words of judgment from Jeremiah on the religious leaders of Jeremiah's day. Religious leaders who lifted themselves up in their sin by exploiting the fatherless and the widow, by shedding innocent blood and opposing the foreigner. And Jesus, by quoting this, says, My house was supposed to be this, but you've made it this. And you are under my judgment because of this. Jesus is a merciful king. He has mercy to those who confess their sins and turn to him, but he will come in judgment and justice on all who reject him, on all those who engage in sin and refuse to turn from it. And some of his harshest words are reserved for those in Jerusalem who thought themselves to be okay because they were the religious leaders They had the temple, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And Jesus says, I am a king who is overturning things because I am a king who will not tolerate this sort of evil anymore from you. So how do the religious leaders respond? Do they repent? Do they acknowledge Jesus as king? Do they change their ways? No. They do not. They, as we'll see on Good Friday and Easter, they instead seek to kill Jesus. They have him put to death. They have no place for a king who is just. They have no place for a king who cares about righteousness. Their sin prevents them from embracing Jesus, and so they reject him as king. We see the beginnings of this rejection in their response to the worship the king receives. We're told that after driving out the money changers and pronouncing this judgment, that the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. So the blind and the lame, those on the outskirts, those that the religious leaders don't have time for, they come to Jesus, and they receive healing. And the children, the little ones, cry out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David. So they see Jesus as the king. They're rejoicing that Jesus is a just and righteous king. But the leaders do not do so. We're told that they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Do you hear what they're saying about you? They're saying you're the son of David. They're saying you're the king. You going to do something about that? Surely you don't think you're the king here. Jesus says, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Jesus says, it is right and it is appropriate in the temple of God for these children to honor my name. And he ups the ante even further than just saying that he's any old king, or even that he's the Davidic king. By quoting this passage, he's saying that he is the divine king. He quotes there from Psalm 8, in verse 16, which is a psalm of praise to Yahweh, 
to God. And in that psalm, it speaks of how God is worthy of praise, and those who are young, the infants and children, will worship him. And so Jesus now responds to criticism of the children praising him by saying, haven't you read that children should praise God? And they're praising him. You see the connection? If it, He's saying it's right for children to praise God, and so it's right for them to praise me. Jesus is claiming the kingship. He's claiming the Davidic kingship. He's claiming the divine kingship. He's saying, I'm God. And it's worthy of people to worship me in the temple, the place where people worship God. You see, Jesus is the divine king who is worthy of all worship. He is beyond just your regular old king. He's beyond even the Davidic king. He is the divine king. And so the right response to him is one of worship. It is one of honoring him as king. And the wrong response is to refuse to give him the glory and the honor that he deserves and to refuse to turn from our sins and follow him. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. And he is our saving king. He is our merciful king. He is worthy of our honor and our praise. He is worthy of our devotion. He is worthy of us turning from sin. So if you're here today and you are following Jesus, rejoice in him. And if you're here this morning and you are not yet following Jesus, turn and call to him. He will show mercy if you turn to him. But if you do not, you will be under his judgment. So please, if you are here today, do not harden your hearts, but turn to him. Let us now pray together and praise him, and then we will join with the crowds who worshipped him in song and praise. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to the Son of David. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the Son, the one who is our glorious King, the one who is worthy of our praise. We worship you. Blessed are you, O God. Blessed is your Son. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Would you help us to honor you with our lives? Would you help us to see what it looks like to follow Jesus? Would you cause us to walk a path of righteousness and justice following the righteous and just King? And would you use your words to in your scriptures to cause our hearts to rejoice and to love you and to honor you all the days of our life. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the risen, ascended, and returning Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and sing with me. Crown him.